Welcome to the Manulife Exchange, an exclusive podcast created for you, our advisors, to take stock of the latest insights, news, and solutions that are driving our industry forward. We're on a mission to make decisions easier and lives better, and we believe in the power of your advice. So get ready to examine, redefine, and simplify insurance. Get ready to rethink insurance. Manulife's tax and estate planning team are a group of accountants and lawyers supporting advisors with complex cases using life insurance solutions. In our episodes, we bring real-life experience to you that we hope will inspire you to identify similar situations and explore insurance solutions. Hello, everyone. My name is Tony Lee. I'm the Assistant Vice President for Tax and Estate Planning in Western Canada. I'm joined today with my colleague, Deanne, in Montreal. Hi, my name is Deanne Hamel, and I am also Assistant Vice President for the Tax and Estate Planning Group, and I cover the province of Quebec. So today we're going to talk about Generation 2. A lot of times when we focus on life insurance, we we focus on Generation 1. A lot of planning that can be done for Generation 1, but I think Generation 2 needs a deeper dive as well. Do you agree, Deanne? Absolutely. And uh, I'd say that the vast majority of cases I have worked on last year were insuring Generation 2. And we see that a lot because our clients have uh, done a lot of planning and they are looking at transferring, potentially transferring their business to the next generation. That's quite interesting because what we've seen is that only one in 10 business owners actually have a plan, but it seems like who we are talking to are the one in the 10 because nine out of 10 don't have anything. Well, I think what happens is that they plan to minimize taxes. They will do an estate freeze and they will issue new shares to a family trust, but they are not thinking about who are they going to transfer this business to and how are they going to transfer it? That's what I'm seeing. I think it makes a big difference whether the business is actually an active business, where there's actually, say, buying, selling, manufacturing of goods versus a, a passive business where the only job is holding of assets, be it marketable securities or real estate. Those are actually going to make a big difference. Another statistics that I read recently was that the largest or biggest hurdle that business owners are facing is actually finding a successful successor to their business. A lot of times what I've seen in practice is that the kids, well, I use kids sparingly because kids are actually in their potentially 40s and 50s now, the kids don't want to be in the back of business. Do you see that as the case, Deanne? Yeah, absolutely. It's not because your parents were involved uh, and were really busy with their active business that the children necessarily want to do the same. So we are seeing companies and more and more companies being sold to third parties. What I've seen recently also is companies being sold to employees as well. And you're right. So when you're talking about the transfer of a business to the next generation, there's a big difference between an active business and a passive business investments, for example. But even though there aren't all of the 
soft issues like preparing the children to take over the business or things like that, it, it still needs a lot of thought as to how you're going to transfer this investment business to the next generation as well. I agree. I mean, the statistics are showing us that 75% of the businesses are sold to third parties and employees. So only 25% of active businesses are going to be transferred to their children. One example that I've recently encountered is, uh, you know, Chinese food, a transition of Chinese businesses. A lot of times the parents were immigrants and what they could do was only cook. Uh, so they opened up restaurants. However, their next generation, their children, they were taught and educated so they wouldn't have to do a hard job such as cooking all day in the kitchen. So that could be another factor leading to why there's not going to be a lot of transition of family businesses to the next generation. They probably are better educated. There's also the fact that, and we know it was an issue when you were selling a business to a family member, you weren't able to get the same tax treatment as when you were selling it to a third party, unrelated third party. And we know that last year, there's Bill C-208 that was enacted uh, to kind of allow at least a better tax treatment for sales of a business to the next generation without having to incur the same taxes as the third parties. I think that's true. The, the intention of Bill C-208 was to level the playing field so that the next generation with their holding companies could actually buy uh, shares of mom and dad's company. However, today, I think we'll focus more on the selling and transitioning of a passive business, which typically does happen a lot. We'll go through a case study that I've worked on uh, last year. So where you have a situation where the parents sold the business a few years ago, they have personal cash. They also have cash inside the corporation. Uh, so it becomes an investment holding company. And there's a lot of those types of companies out there. Typically, they, they would have done an estate freeze. So dad and mom own shares worth $15 million. And the corporation is worth $45 million in basically investments. So the shares of the, held by the family trust are now worth $30 million. And do we see a need to ensure generation one? Yes, of course, they have frozen shares. There's a tax liability there. Also, possibility of wanting to redeem the entire value of the preferred shares. But as well, we also see a need to ensure the, uh, the siblings because the beneficiaries of this trust would typically be the children, the grandchildren, company controlled by those individuals, as well as a company controlled by the parents. So the question becomes, should we ensure generation two? And of course the answer is yes, or else we wouldn't be speaking to you. But then the real question is, who should own the policy? Yeah, I agree. There's so many entities in what you just described. There's, there's a holding company, there's personal, there is a family trust. A lot of times advisors ask us, 
where should we put the policy? And it, it's difficult because there is no clean cut answer. But just before we dive into why we should, uh, our considerations for putting a policy and where to put it, I want to talk about why we want to give this careful consideration before going on is that if you place a policy in an incorrect spot, say you place it in the operating company, a few years down the road, you're going to come to us and have a question about how do I move this policy because the operating company is potentially being sold now. And then we'll tell you that, well, there's considerations for a policy gain that needs to be considered when moving the policy. And if you're moving it to a holding company or a personal individual, then there's going to be the fair market value consideration, which typically requires a third-party evaluator to come in and actually calculate that. Do you think that's a common question we get asked, Ian? Common, I would say more than common. Absolutely. You're right, Tony. We have to look at the situation and try to determine who should own this policy. And we hopefully we wouldn't have to transfer this policy at a future date. So let's take this case a bit further. Let's say dad and mom are gone. The three siblings now own the shares of the company. Now this is an investment company. Do they want to remain co-shareholders of this investment company? Now, I don't know for you, Tony, I just, I have three brothers and I just love them. But would I be willing to be a co-shareholder of this company with my siblings? Probably not. We probably don't have the same investment philosophy. I definitely agree with you. I have a, a sister who is also an accountant and I love her dearly, but I cannot do business with her in any means or any context. So to compound that fact that most of the time there's also spouses that are involved. So not just is that you're dealing with your siblings, you're also dealing with their spouses that can have significant influence on their decision-making. So I was working on the case uh, last week where the children were now in their sixties. So you kind of wonder, are they going to perpetuate this situation with their own children? Because it's one thing to be three siblings, but then if you add the spouses and if you ha add the um, nieces and nephews, then probably becomes unbearable. So you really have to think if this company will remain together. So is it difficult to break up this company? In my career, I've only seen it one time where they were been able to successfully break up a company into, uh, in my scenario, it was eight separate companies. But I think what is common is that these types of uh, breakups are actually quite expensive to do and very uh, hard to execute. And typically what when I see it happen, or I've, I've seen it happen, is that the stars have to align. So you're talking about a, a butterfly transaction, and it's a type of transaction where you can separate the this one holding company into three transferring the assets without having any taxes to pay on the disposition of the assets and at the same time being able 
to split it up in three without any tax consequences. And from what I'm being told as well from tax practitioners is you wouldn't do a transaction like that for under $20 million. So that is a way to separate the company. But if there's a life insurance policy in there, or two or three, then the life insurance policy cannot be transferred out on a tax deferred basis. So the consequences you were talking about before, which is policy gain and shareholder benefit based on the, the fair market value of the policy, well, that, uh, that applies. So that's one way of breaking it up, which is probably the best potential way. The other way is just to wind up the company. So there are investments in there, sell the investments, pay the tax, distribute the assets to the individuals, but then that attracts a lot of tax by doing it that way. And again, if the insurance policy was in that holding company, you have those tax consequences. It's like adding a new child to your uh, company because CRA will take uh, a portion probably equal to a quarter of the assets when you decide to do a wind up. But I think there is another way is it's sort of like a, I would call a hybrid or a partial where you can actually create three new holding companies and distribute uh, a portion of the assets to those holding companies. But again, you still have to have that main umbrella company intact. So you are just still co-owners of that asset, but you have holding company. So you do have some discretion over the investment philosophy. However, most of it is still going to be inside the main umbrella holding company. So basically what we're saying is if you do put the life insurance policy inside the holding company, you have to be aware that of the fact that eventually this company, if you split it up, there will be consequences if you want to split up the policies as well. So coming back to our original question, who should own the insurance? Well, probably not the family trust, right? Because a family trust would generally, and I'm saying generally, not have any cash because a family trust is used as a conduit to transfer to transfer dividends out to the beneficiaries. So it's only if, for example, shares of the company have been sold and that the, the trust kept some of the cash assets in there. But if not, it, typically there wouldn't be any cash. Yeah, the downside of keeping income inside a, a family trust is that it's going to be taxed at the highest marginal tax rate. So again, you're, you're eroding half of that capital. So for every $100 you pay up to the family trust to pay for the life insurance policy, you're only getting 50 cents to purchase the life insurance policy. So a family trust is definitely not a good place to put the life insurance. And then there's a, a holding company owned by each individual. So that would be a possibility as well. As I said before, generally included in the beneficiaries of a family trust, you will find a corporation controlled by one of the individuals. So each sibling can open their own holding company and dividends could be paid to the family trust and end up 
in the hands of the holding company of each individual, and therefore the life insurance policy can be held in those personal holding companies. I think that would be a better solution to having it in that main holding company where all the children are shareholders. Eventually, when mom and dad pass away, there's always going to be uh, disputes. What I've seen is they play nice when mom and dad are alive, but when mom and dad pass away, all the uh, issues come up and then we're talking about how do we break this up. And oftentimes, mom and dad really want the kids to remain co-shareholders of this company. And they do not want the, the spouses to become beneficiaries as well. So they try to control that uh, with a shareholder agreement and everything. But at the same time, I think you have to look a bit further and really wonder if it would make sense to keep this holding company all together or split it up. And if you are going to split it up, just not a bad idea to put the, the insurance on each of the siblings in their own holding company. Okay, so uh, Tony, I think when everything is said and done, it does make a lot of sense to look at the second generation and ensuring the second generation, probably even the third one and the earliest, the better. So thanks for this discussion, Tony, and uh, we'll speak again soon. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Manulife Exchange. We're driving the insurance industry to innovative solutions for our customers and the communities we serve are at the forefront of everything we do. Rethinking insurance is what we do. How about you? For more information on the future of insurance and for more episodes, please visit manulife.ca forward slash the Manulife Exchange. Thanks for tuning in. Copyright Manulife. This podcast, including case studies and support materials, is for general information purposes only and is not specific to any one individual or case. This podcast shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, tax, accounting, or other advice. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and are subject to change based on legislative, case law, market, and other conditions that may change during the course of recording and publishing this podcast. Support materials reference may be incomplete if viewed on their own and should be referenced within the context of the applicable podcast episode. Individuals should seek the advice of professionals with respect to this information and any action taken. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from the use of information in this podcast. The manufacturer's life insurance company, Manulife, is the issuer of Manulife insurance contracts. Manulife, Manulife and Stylized M Design, and Stylized M Design are trademarks of the manufacturer's life insurance company and are used by it and by its affiliates under license.